Valentine's Day Friday. Man, I ain't hear no, no, no excitement, no. So some people, I thought it would be like a little bit of pause or something. Husbands offended because I reminded their wives. Some people looking around. Valentine's Day, Friday. And nobody in my church cares. All right, well, let's. I am sorry I brought it up. And, uh, husbands, you better do something. Unless it's agreed upon with your wife. Me and my wife actually don't even really do Valentine's Day. Because when we were dating, we saw the hustle. So you go to the same restaurant. You wait three hours to get in, and the food is 8 to $11 more expensive. So we just said, you know what? You are my Valentine every day, baby. <laughs> Trying to get these young dudes some game right now. First, you got to get a girl. <laughs> when five dudes say, yeah, that's concerning. All right, open the Bible, so your Bible app to Romans chapter 8. We are going to continue in our series on Romans. We're looking at three verses today, verses 31 through 34. And this is, this doesn't happen that often in the scriptures, but there are times when this does occur. And this is one of those times where we actually get a Q&A from God. Where God asks a series of questions Sometimes he answers them, sometimes they're rhetorical, but he asks questions to help us process what we actually know to be true. As we know, questions are a powerful reality. It's how you understand things. In fact, half of, a lot of Jesus' ministry was question-oriented. People would show up and say, good teacher, why do you call me good? <laughs> well, make sure you know what you're talking about. Why are you asking me to do this? Who touched me? What does the scripture say? He's always asking questions. Well, in this particular portion of the scripture, God is giving us a Q&A. And there are five questions here that he asks. And he answers one or two of them. But the rest of them are questions to make a point about your identity, my identity, those who believe in Jesus Christ have an identity. And to reinforce this reality, God does it differently. He decides to ask questions of us, and he does it in these five questions. Beginning in verse 31 of Romans chapter 8, reading from the CSB translation, and I quote, What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died. But even more has been raised. 
he also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. So within this group of three verses, there are five questions that God is asking and wanting us, and he answers one or two of them, but he wants us to wrestle with the reality of these answers, to wrestle with the questions because these questions are intended to give people who believe in Jesus a measure of confidence. Now remember, our confidence is primarily based in faith because it's not always our experience. Any seasoned, any beginning Christian will tell you that sometimes what I experience is different from what I read. And God knows that. He knows that. So what we're told, what we're asked by God, what we're asked of God is to help us process exactly who are we from God's perspective. And these five questions are poised to do that very thing this morning. Let's pray and then we'll jump in. Father, thank you for your word and the reality that you know how we are. You, your word says in Psalm 103, for you remember how we are formed or that we are only dust. And that you know that, that our experience is not going to match up at times with what your word says. And yet we're going to try to obey what your word says, even if it's not our experience or, or we're going to seek to believe it because it honors you. It, it gives you glory when we don't by sight believe things, but we believe them by faith. And by faith is because you said it, even if we don't see it, so we believe it to be true. That's our functional reality, and that's the journey in many ways, not in all things, but in many ways for us as Christians in this life. We're going to believe things because you said them, not because we experience them, because we feel them. And in that, we're learning to trust you. Help us to get to the point that when, when Jesus stood in front of Pilate and Pilate seemed like he had all the authority and he said to Jesus, are you not going to answer me? Don't you know I can crucify you? And Jesus said to him, you would have no power over me unless it were given you from above. He understood the truth, even though the circumstances looked as if Pilate had the power. We are no different, Lord. Sometimes our circumstances look like they have the power, that they would shape our identity, that their words or their laws or their whatever it is shape our identity. But no, your word shapes our identity. And so this morning, through these questions, help us to remind and remember this reality. For your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen. Here's the first question. Here's what the first question to ask. What then are we to say about these things? Which asks another question. What are these things he's referring to? What are these things? Now, the most proper way to look at a passage is to look at well, what was said before the passage. What are these things? If, I, if you walk into someone telling a joke, and all you hear is, and a monkey ran across the street and then tripped, and everybody busts out laughing. 
And you would sit there and be like, huh? Well, you missed the first part. You missed it. So the joke isn't funny. Well, if we don't understand what these things are, then we don't know what we're supposed to say about them. We have no idea what we're supposed to say. So what are the these things that verse 31 is saying we should have something to say about? Well, good biblical exegesis is to just look what came before it. So if we look at our last passage, it starts off with all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, those who love God. Right. So we can go back and say, well, look, what do we to say about these things? All things work together for good. For those who are believers in Jesus. For those who love God. Jesus says, if you love me, obey my commandments. So it's not just people who verbally agree with the Christian ideology. It's people who say, I love God enough to obey him. And at least to make attempts, right? Because we all fail. Perfection, no. Direction, yes. We're going in the right direction. Okay, but it also says after that, it uses these weighty theological words we talked about last week. These are not words of some system of biblical interpretation like Lutheranism or Calvinism or Arminianism. These are words that come straight out of the Bible. So it says, you know, those he foreknew, he predestined. It said those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. So this is a reality. So what do we to say about these things? What do we to say about that God has called us, that God has selected people? That's what it means to be called. Your presence is officially requested by the God Most High. And that call is connected to hearing the gospel and responding to it. Now, he's not talking about everyone who hears the gospel, but the people who have believed the gospel. They have responded to the call. But then it says he foreknew. That means he knew beforehand. So there are people that have responded to the gospel that God knew beforehand. He selected in advance. And it says he predestined. He determined something ahead of its time. He determined that there would be people that he foreknew that he would call that would respond and believe the gospel that he's going to work out all these things for their good. He said they're justified. So those people who he selected, that he knew, that he decided before the world existed would be not guilty for the sins that they commit. Justified is what that means. Not guilty from God's perspective. You're not guilty. How does that work? Everyone in this room who's a believer is probably more aware of how they failed God this morning than what they did for God. So how does that work? From God's perspective, he says you're not guilty. The punishment for the failing of God has been given to Jesus. You've been justified. The people that have been justified will be glorified. 
This is God positively acknowledges and recognizes those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Why will people be glorified? Because God knows that many of us, anyone who professes to be a believer, has the same issues. We all have to resist temptation. We have to resist things that we actually get pleasure from. And that's not normal. Most people don't, don't want to resist things they get pleasure from. But we resist things that we get pleasure from because God says those pleasures are evil. Or they have no place. So we resist. We resist talking about others. We resist giving in to sexual sin. There's pleasure in it. Anyone who tells you that sin isn't pleasurable is lying. That's the draw, right? Who does things that intentionally hurt them unless they get pleasure from it? I remember some years ago talking to this girl, and she was struggling because she was cutting herself. And she would take a razor, and she would sometimes cut her inner thigh, or she would cut her arm. And when I saw that, I thought, man, why would you take a razor and cut yourself? And she said, you know, because it takes away the pain that I feel inside. It makes me focus on another pain. So even though her cutting herself hurt physically, for her, it was beneficial. None of us do things that we don't think are beneficial for us. At least our desires don't. And sometimes what we think is beneficial, we have to resist, and God knows that. So he says, those of you who believe in Jesus, who are trying to live according to what he says, according to what I say, are going to be glorified. There's a reward waiting. So what do we say about these things? This is the question God's asking. What do you say about this reality? What do you say about the fact that that all things work together for the good? What do you say about the fact that the spirit, that the Holy Spirit is inside of you groaning and interceding, interacting with God on our behalf, sometimes unbeknownst to us? What do you say that God has deposited in each person who believes in Jesus, his own self? What do you say to the fact that God has said, I'm going to send my son to die on the cross to forgive you for sin? You talk about why does a good God allow suffering? Why did I choose to allow my son to suffer? What do you say to that is what he's asking. What do we say about these things? These are all identity statements. These are all statements that affect our eternal identity. And these are important. Why? Because we live in a culture that's constantly competing with identity. Constantly competing with identity. And this year is going to be one of the toughest. As we approach the political realm, the battle for identity is big. I'm in these groups uh, groups of guys I know and love. We have different perspectives politically. 
but I love them. You know why? Because my primary identity is not voted in Democrat or Republican. My primary identity is not a libertarian. All this stuff means nothing in the grand scheme of things. My identity is in Christ. There's no one that's going to have his platform. Vote your conscience, but you ain't voting for Jesus unless you put his name on the ballot. I should have done that. I wrote Mickey Mouse one time, but I should have wrote Jesus. I don't trust nobody. We battle for identity. So God is reorienting our identity. Look, you've been justified. You've been glorified. And you know why? Because back in the day before this all existed, I selected you to believe in my son. I selected you to suffer Suffer by resisting the sin to suffer the persecution of what it means to be a follower of Jesus because I'm going to reward you far greater than you suffer. What do you say to these things? This is what he's asking. And the biblical answer to this question, he actually says in the next question. Verse 31. What do we say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? If God is for us, who is against us? This is answering a question with a question. I used to know people who used to do this all the time to be sarcastic. Hey, man, what's up? You trying to watch the game today? Is the Pope Catholic? Uh, yeah. Want me to bring some chips? Do monkeys jump from trees? Like, man, can you say yes? <laughs> Always answering the question with a question, right? He was just being sarcastic, right? That's not what he's doing. He's bringing us to a deeper level of truth here. So what do we say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? What do we say? God is for us. God is for us. That's what we say about these things. Wow. The God who created, who has creation and humanity, the God who is sovereign whom we can't see but controls everything, this God who makes the sun rise and who tells the ocean only this further, this God who controls the seasons, who said he knows the stars, of the name every single star, that God said, I'm for you. I actually care about you. I'm for you. The God who has all this in his grasp, says, I'm for you. I'm actually for you. Why is this important? Because this goes against our experience. Listen, any Christian in this room who has experienced any kind of suffering that can say God is good is saying that because the spirit of God is in them and is transforming their mind. Because let's not lie, I've gotten some splinters before that have felt like my hand needs to be cut off. This splinter hurts, especially on your feet. I got hardwood floors in my office, and that splinter goes in like, like it was, it's almost like it was standing straight up and I just slammed my foot on it. And then you can't get it out. You can say that without girls beside you. The splinter hurts. 
I wouldn't, if the Lord said, hey, what kind of suffering you want? I would probably say, uh, not splinters. <laughs> None of us think when we suffer, God is for us. You know why? Because we're wired to not want anyone to suffer, right? Especially those of us that have children. The last thing you hate, you hate when your children are crying and they're upset. You want to protect them from everything. But sometimes you got to protect them from themselves, right? <laughs> Suffering sometimes protects us from ourselves because our worldview would be totally different. And the way we view God would be totally different. Because then God would be a God who does everything for us in this life and then blesses us for having no adversity in this life and the next life. But the whole point of, of God saying, listen, I have something better for you. The whole point of Jesus' suffering and being a man of sorrows indicates that the people who believe in Jesus are going to suffer and experience some sorrow is to say, I'm for you. Here's a question to ask when you're suffering and struggling. Is what I'm going through inconsistent with the way I see God act in Scripture? Is my suffering inconsistent with the way I see God relate to the godly in Scripture? You will be hard-pressed to say yes. You will go to men like Joseph, who were falsely accused. You will go to men like Abraham, who was told to kill his son, and who was ready to do it. You will go to men like John the Baptist, who's in prison and gets his head cut off in prison. You will look at Hebrews 11 and list all these people who love God and suffered. You'll go to Paul, who was faithfully preaching the gospel, but in 2 Corinthians 11 lays out a manifesto of suffering as an apostle. Was God not for them? You look at Jesus, who cried out, my God. My God, why have you forsaken me in the midst of the most suffering that anyone has ever experienced? Was God not for him? What God is trying to say is, I'm for you. And the battle is to not let your suffering convince you otherwise. And in fact, these terms of called, foreknew, predestined, I actually chose this for you before you even existed. God is for us. And once that reality sinks in, well, then if God who controls everything is for us, why do we care if anybody's against us? Why should we care? He chose us to believe in his son before he created our son. 
Ephesians 1 says this, verses 3 through 6. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. That's our reality. God is for the Christian. Suffering is not simply because you sinned and are being punished for it. Now, I'm not saying that never exists. But most suffering isn't because of that. But this is the battle. This is the spy versus spy that happens within every believer. This is the battle. And this battle is not just ours. It's been the battle of saints throughout the scriptures. Throughout the scriptures. Case in point. Psalm chapter 6. Listen to the words of David. Lord. Do not rebuke me in your anger. Do not discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, Lord, for I am weak. Heal me. Lord, for my bones are shaking. My whole being is shaken with terror. And you, Lord, how long? Listen to what he's saying. Lord, I'm I'm struggling. And I don't see you doing anything about it. How long is this thing going to last? Because I don't think I'm going to make it. He says this, turn, Lord. Rescue me. Save me because of your faithful love. For there is no remembrance of you in death. Who can thank you in shield? I am weary from my groaning. With my tears, I dampen my bed and drench my couch every night. It's like, Lord. You see my pain? Do my tears matter to you? Do you not know that I'm praying and asking you for the salvation of my children? And it doesn't look like they're saved? Lord, do you hear me asking you to take this desire from me? And yet I still have it? Like, do you not see me that my need, I need to provide for my family and I just need a job, just a job? Can I have a job, please? Why are other people getting married and I'm not? I've been praying as long as them. Do you not see me? 
do you not love me? This isn't new. This isn't new to have to suffer and and trust God in the midst of all of it. David goes on to say in verse 7 of of Psalm 6, my eyes are swollen from grief. They grow old because of all my enemies. Is God not loving of David? That's the temptation. And it's a temptation for many of us when we suffer. No different. David and the people in Scripture were human beings just like us. David was not a metahuman. He's just like us. And remember what God said about David. This is a man after my own heart. And these are his words. These are the words of a man whom God said is after my own heart. And he's acting like, God, I don't even know what you're doing. Do you see the people who love God in the scriptures at times wrestle with and struggle with? God, what are you doing? And he never says, these people aren't genuine. He understands we struggle. But the goal is to fight for our identity in him. Always. It wasn't different in the Old Testament. It's not different today. David continues and says this, depart from me. Remember, he just said, my eyes are crying so much, that I look old. Old Benjamin Button over here, right here, look, he just looks old. A young dude looking old. Now you say kids, they seven going on, 27. David was 30, looking like he's 70, crying, distraught. But then he says this in verse 8. Depart from me, all evildoers, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea for help. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies will be ashamed, shaken with terror. They will turn back and suddenly be disgraced. Now, it's possible that the spirit could have showed up and told David that he wrote those last couple verses. But I think what David did is what the rest of us have to do. What does God's word say? What does this say? God is for you, David. He's for you. So what does God for us mean? It means that he loves us. It means he forgives us. It means he knows what's best for us. And he wants to spend eternity with us. We have to fight to believe that or else it's going to struggle. Some people walk away. If God is for us, who can be against us? 
If God is for us, I can handle this circumstance. I don't like it. You notice that David didn't say, oh, Lord, because you love me, let more suffering come upon me. Let my enemies encamp me and cast out my eyes. And Nah. He was like, kill them. Remember me. Whatever circumstances we're facing, okay, God is for us. Doesn't mean I like this. Doesn't mean I don't want it to stop. Doesn't mean I'm not going to cry. Doesn't mean I'm not going to ask God to take it away, but I am called. God foreknew me. He predestined. I'm justified. I'm glorified. His words, not mine. Third question. Verse 32. How will he not also with him grant us everything? How will he also not with also, how will he not also with him grant us everything? This is where it becomes a little problematic. Right? But we have to remember, there's a difference between everything and anything. Especially in this context. So anything is something, whatever, a thing of any kind. That's not what he's saying in this context. Everything means total, all, a completion. All things. So here's the problem. When most of us read this passage, here's how we read it. He will not also, will he not also grant with us everything that we desire? We don't mean to. We know the words aren't there. But just like Eve said to the serpent before sin that God said not to just don't touch it, don't eat of the tree, but don't even touch it. God didn't say that. So I'm not even saying it's sinful to, to add words right there. But that's what we do. How will he not grant us everything we desire? And then all of a sudden we get confused. Well, now, hold up now. I've been asking for such and such for a while. So it says he'll give us everything. Here's the question. Who defines everything? Who defines everything? Because if I define everything, then my desires and all that stuff are included. Who defines everything? If it's us, passages like this will confuse me because I feel like I, there's a lot. I feel like I get told no from God more than yes. So how is this everything thing working out? <laughs> so we have to read things on who's talking and what's the context. God's talking and in the context Everything is connected to what he already stated. And he uses a couple words that we also skip over. Not, not intentionally, but just desirably. So he says, how will he not also with him grant us everything? Now, that doesn't mean 
God and the Father like, oh, he wants that? Bing. You know why everyone loves that Oprah? You get a car, and you get a car, and you get a car. You know why everyone loves that? Because everyone who wasn't there was like, dang, I wish I was there that day. That's the first thing I thought when I saw it. Man, I wonder what kind of car they got. Too many people got a car. It's probably like something low-key, you know, a Civic or something. I would have sold it, made a couple thousand. You know, I would have sold it. But we love that. I'm not making fun of no Civic. I drive a soccer mom van. Look at me. I'm making fun of the Civic. I like Honda. It's good people. What I'm saying is we love that because that's how we want God to be. You get your prayer answered, and you get this desire, and you get this, and you get that, and you get that. And all you got to do is be better, and then you get this, and then you get that. And there's nothing about with him or his purpose involved in any of it. It's all what we think. It's all what I desire. So when I read this passage, he will grant us everything. I start thinking about all the things I pray for that I haven't gotten, and I forget that it's with him and in context, his purpose. So the question is, what is his purpose and what does it mean with him? That's the question that we have to wrestle with. And here's an unpopular fact. When God makes promises in scripture, he doesn't think in terms of this life only. Unpopular opinion. Don't shoot the messenger. He doesn't think in terms of this life only. So when he makes promises, he's not thinking. So everything to God isn't everything you want. It's everything that I predestined you to experience and have which includes things well beyond this world, which is why he says in verse 18, for I consider that your sufferings are not worth being compared with the glory that's going to be revealed to you. That glory that's going to be revealed to you for your your perseverance and your suffering because you believe in Jesus is part of the everything that's with Christ that we're going to receive. He's not promising just this life or just our desires. With him, with Christ, it's connected to the purpose of God for his people. And the blessing does not come without the appearance of cursing. Even the world knows no pain, no gain, right? There's a reality that what he's saying here is how we not also grant with us everything. He's connecting it to all that he said and his purpose for us. Now, because we don't always know what that looks like or when it's going to happen, we are allowed to ask for everything. But we, 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 try, to be, we try to be grateful if we receive anything. And we still trust them if we receive nothing. And nothing, I mean, in context of what we're asking. We don't always know. So we ask. We pray for wisdom. We pray for specific desires, jobs, housing, marriage, parenting, salvation for others. 
We pray. And the challenge will be, if this is good, a good thing, why why isn't it good to God? There are many people in this room who have been praying for the salvation of someone. Salvation is good. Why are they still not walking with the Lord? How can it be good to us and not good to him? Wait till we get to Romans 9. Y'all said y'all wanted to go through Romans. That's the rub. That's the rub. But God defines good. He defines suffering. He defines everything. He will give us everything in connection to Christ. So all the promises. So that's why he can speak. You know, you ever wonder why things are spoken in past tense? You ever get confused when the Bible says, that talk about people being saved, right? You say you're saved. If you, someone asks you, you're a Christian, I'm saved. You say it past tense, I'm saved. But then the Bible says, he who perseveres to the end will be saved. So wait a minute. I'm saved right now, but you haven't persevered to the end. Why does he do that? Why is he using the word glorified? This ain't glorified, right? Oh, there's a lot of people in this room that don't got glorified bodies. Don't just talk about mine. But he speaks past tense like it's already happened. Why does he do that? This isn't my experience. That's intentional language. Because God teaches us through that kind of language that your interpretation of the world is not the true interpretation. It's mine. So I can speak past tense about who's going to be glorified and that people are saved because I know all things. Our job is to acknowledge that we don't to live in faith and to persevere to the end. As Peter says, make our calling and election sure. So when people walk away from the faith, oh my gosh, they were so godly, like how do I know? The scripture addresses that. A buddy of mine used to say this, not all Israel is Israel. Might say, yeah, I still say that phrase. So don't put your iPad down. Why, Poppy, not all Israel is Israel. Not all solid rock is solid rock. In other words, somebody will take your iPad in the church, son. Welcome to living in the fallen world. And guess what? Poppy's pockets ain't like that as you getting another one. Right, Oprah, son. We don't know when or where, so we ask. But like Jesus, I love, you know, the garden of Gethsemane, say what you want about it. You know what I love about that scene is that Jesus genuinely was asking that the, and he was asking something he knew couldn't happen, that the father take the cup away from him. But then he said, not my will, but your will be done. People said he didn't answer his prayer. No, he, just, he, he revealed his will. That's a, that's a, that's asking from God 101. Not my will, but your will be done. And then we have to resist the temptation to be offended when it doesn't seem like his will is our will. It's the beauty of the Christian life. God is for us. 
but his promises are not just for this life. And I would say the majority of his promises are not for this life. They're for the life to come. And so sometimes we fight. We believe that God is for us. That he grants us everything. When is his timing? Next question. Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? And the answer is it. God is the one who justifies. Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? There are only five times in the Bible that he uses the word elect. This is the first. Romans 9, he uses it. He uses it three times in Romans, twice in other passages. Once in uh, Titus, and he uses this word elect. He does not use this word flippantly. He's summing up in this word all of the calling, foreknew, predestined, justified, glorified, and he calls them the elect, which means to be chosen, to be picked out, to be selected. Saying these are the people that God is, he's, it's, like, it's like shorthand for all of those categories of the elect. He'll talk about this next, next chapter, election. God's choosing says, who can bring an accusation against the people that God has chosen to save? Who? Satan, definitely. This, that's, that's Satan's M.O. As a matter of fact, most of the times Satan is mentioned or we hear him speak, it's either some kind of accusation or something negative about the person or God, or sometimes both. Listen to this, Zechariah 3.1. Listen, then he showed he showed me the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. Right. He showed me the high priest, Joshua, standing before the angel of the Lord with Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. So Zechariah has a vision and sees the high priest, Joshua. Right. Standing. Before God. And Satan is right beside him, <laughs> accusing him. What did that look like? Joshua, here's Satan. Remember that time he lied? Remember the time that he did what you said don't do? Remember the time he got angry? God, remember that time? What you going to do about that? This is the high priest, Joshua. Remember this sin and remember that and remember this? Just accusing him before God. As if God is like, oh, he, he did that? <laughs> it's almost like, Satan, are you really that? Are you that dumb, fam? Like, God isn't sitting there like, oh, what? This is new information. <laughs> Jesus, we should change up. He's accusing him before the angel of the Lord, Joshua. <laughs> Look, Revelation 12, 7 says this. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels also fought, but he could not prevail, and there was no place for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was thrown out, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the one who deceives the whole world. He was thrown to the earth, and his angels with him. Listen to, listen to this in verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ 
have now come. Because the accuser of our brothers and sisters, listen to this, who accuses them before our God day and night has been thrown down. So here's what the passage is saying. That Satan was at some point camped out. You see what he's doing? You see what he's doing? You see what she said? So you don't care that she thinks this way? You mean to tell me you don't care that he's watching that? So it's okay that he goes to that website. It's okay that she has that anger in her heart? Oh, so she can stand over her spouse while he's sleeping with a knife? No, I'm just playing. Don't do that one. Don't ever do that one. This is his MO. He's the accuser of the brethren. He accuses you. And guess what? He uses his demons to accuse us. How is it that all of us are from all walks of life? Different places all over the place. This is a diverse church and people of the diversity. But you know, the one thing that we have in common is we all feel condemned when we sin. How does that work? How is it that we have different levels of maturity, different sin struggles we struggle with? But every one of us, you give in a sin, you come into church, hard for you to pray, hard for you to sing, even harder to lift your hands and worship. Why do you feel like a hypocrite? Okay, technically you failed, right? But the enemy reminds you of that. You failed him. And we start to think, man, maybe I'm not. But God called. He foreknew. He predestined. Justified. And he glorified. And he for you. Hmm. So who can bring a charge against the elect? Even a supernatural being cannot bring a charge against you, an accusation. And listen, it's not because we haven't done what he said. It's not that. The accusation is legitimate. When God says, who can bring a charge against the elect? It's not because we haven't done it. It's because God's, God said he's already forgiven what we've done. That's why. Listen, from God's perspective, Jesus' excuse me, his death was so significant that people who believe in him, their sins are forgiven. Their sins are forgiven. The people who believe in Jesus and then who are living to believe in Jesus, who are actually trying to honor the Lord, He says, man, this sins are forgiven. It's not Jesus' blood and then all your obedience. No, we obey because we've accepted. We're recipients of the grace. But it's like, nah, we, from God's perspective, Satan can't accuse. Because I've already know what you've done. That's Isaiah 1. Come, let us reason together. He said, I've already known what you've done. He said, come and let's talk about it. He said, so you can come home 
Though your sins will be as scarlet, I will make them as wool. Though they are red, I will make them white as snow. That's why he can't bring a charge against us. It's not because we haven't done it. It's because he's forgiven already what we've done. And this is the challenge. Because I want to feel forgiven. I want to feel that. I want to feel that. You know why? Because we've gotten a foretaste. Many of us have had times with the Lord where it just felt like, man, the Lord was reading the Bible and you were just there listening. Or we've been in worship experiences where it's like, man, the presence of the Lord is this sweet reality. He's given us a foretaste and said there's more to come. When my kids were little, when they were babies, we didn't always know what they would like. So sometimes, you know, you give a baby, you put a little bit on, and you just put it right there. And then, and then like my son, like, like I remember... <laughs> I knew this was going to, some things you just know. I just knew my kids ain't going to like broccoli. So my wife was like, no, 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 let's do this. I said, I'm telling you, they're not going to eat no broccoli. So I'll never forget, Giovanni was a baby. He may have been 16 months. She tried her best to make that broccoli superb. It was a good broccoli. You, and listen, you know it was good when you remember a broccoli from like a long time ago. <laughs> you know, you ever been like, hey, remember that time we went to, you know it was good. The broccoli was outstanding. She took a piece of it off. Von Von hadn't had it yet. She gave it to him. She put it on his tongue. He went like this. <laughs> and then hit the table. Like, man, how dare you give me broccoli like that? <laughs> I was frustrated. But we gave him this cookie. He'll fight you for that cookie. <laughs> he tasted it. Sometimes the Lord has given us some taste so that we continue to trust and fight. But the battle is he's for us. And the accusations, look what he did. Look what she did. Look what he thought. Look what he believes. Look what he's getting ready to do. God is like, listen. I mean, I can't, I, I, I can't, I, I, I got to ask God, can I, what, what did you do when Joshua went to the devil right there? I'm curious as to what Joshua was, was thinking. In modern day vernacular, God would have been like, whose man is this? <laughs> Talking about the enemy. He's forgiven. So if a supernatural being can't bring an accusation against us, then he asks this final question. Who is the one who condemns us? Who is the one who condemns? If God has already sent Jesus to die, then who condemns us? Now, this is different because an accusation and condemnation are two different things. An accusation is here are the facts. Look what he did. Condemnation is you're guilty. And that comes with punishment. So the accusation, look at all the things that he did. That's what the enemy does. Look at what he did. The verdict Condemned, you're guilty. So when he says, who is the one who condemns? It's who is the one that says who's guilty and innocent? Who goes to God's people? Who goes to the elect? It's almost like God is saying, who has the audacity 
to go to the elect and say the people that I've chosen are guilty when I've justified them and said they're not guilty. Who has the authority to condemn but God? Now, Satan loves to condemn us. I'd say the, the real battle for every believer underneath all the different sin issues is condemnation. It's condemnation. It's feeling condemned, guilty. It's feeling like God's tired of us. He doesn't love us. He doesn't have our best interests. And maybe he doesn't want to spend eternity with me. That's what condemnation tells us. Satan definitely wants to condemn us, which is why he accuses. But there's one other person in the scriptures that condemns us that we need to be aware of. First John 3 says this. Little children, let us not love in word or speech, but in action and truth. This is verse 18. First John 3, 18 through 20. This is how we will know that we belong to the truth. Listen to this. This is how we will know that we belong to the truth and will reassure our hearts before him. Whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts and he knows all things. So it says, little children, let us love in word and speech, not, not in word and speech, but in action and truth. This is how we will know that we belong to God and will reassure our hearts before him whenever our hearts condemn us. So guess what? We condemn ourselves. Our hearts condemn us. You know how people say, man, I'm my own worst critic. People say that in a non-biblical way, usually. They're trying to say, I'm a perfectionist, I'm my own worst critic. Oh, I really like that, oh, I'm my own worst critic. Spiritually, many of us are our own worst critics. And some of us have even believed that that's somehow humble. I don't want to start no trouble. The scripture says, whenever our hearts condemn us, guess what? For God is greater than our hearts. In other words, even you are not allowed to condemn you. Even I am not allowed to condemn me. Why? Because God has said, you believe in Jesus, you are justified. You are not guilty. You're not allowed to condemn yourself. That's unbiblical. So it says God is greater than our hearts. In other words, the truth about God, the reality of what God says about our identity, that's, what, that's greater than us. God already knew the hearts of the people. It says he foreknew. You've heard me say this plenty of times, and I'll say this until my time is up here. God is not sitting in heaven looking at what we do and what we think and being like, hey, Where's the Holy Spirit at? Hey, fam, are you working in this dude or what? That's not happening. Listen, the things that we struggle with, if God truly foreknew, predestined, the things that we struggle with are our crosses to carry. For whatever reason, God decided that this is what this person is going to go through in this life 
This is, what, this is the cross they're going to carry. This is what they're going to experience in this life. And they're going to glorify me by continuing to trust me despite these things. By continuing to carry their cross. That's why we have different struggles in this room. Some people struggle with something that some people don't struggle with at all. Can't imagine. I know some people that grip by anxiety. I can't even spell it that well. It's not my normal thing to struggle with. But I got my own issues. Everyone has their own issues. Your cross to carry is what God gave you to suffer with in this life so that he could spend eternity with us after we persevere to the end so that we get that glorified body, that that justification is now not an idea, a truth that we have to believe by faith, that it's what we live eternally by sight. So he's trying to encourage us with these questions. Satan can't condemn us. We can't condemn ourselves. He says, Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. The cross and the resurrection. You know, we like to separate it and make the cross everything and the resurrection once a year on Easter. The scripture, he says, but more than that, you rarely see the, the resurrection being, being lifted up above the cross even. Everything is about the cross. But if the resurrection doesn't happen, then the cross was nothing. So right here, he brings the reality. The sole reason that God doesn't condemn us for sin is because he condemned Jesus for sin. But Jesus didn't just die. He rose from the dead. The resurrection we celebrate on Easter, but the resurrection we live in it every day. We may celebrate it on Easter, but we definitely live in it at Christmas. And then he says, lastly, listen to this. Is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. So he just told us a couple verses back that the spirit is in us, right? So God's spirit intercedes in us. And then he says, Jesus at the right hand of God interceding for us. We can't lose. It's a win-win. But we have to live it out by faith. It's not a win-win that we do nothing. It's a win-win that encourages us to fight for everything until it's over. And it gets better, and we'll look at that the next, next week's last, next four verses.